Good morning. Good morning. The scripture today is on page 1011 in your pew Bible. It's also in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Yep, and it's up there behind me. And you're already standing? Okay. (laughs) My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Uh, Let's pray together as we take a look at James. Gracious God, um, thank you that you are a God of mercy. That when we come to you, we come really with nothing but sin in our hands. Uh, We come with our lives that are broken and messed up. And thank you, Lord, that you don't wait for us to put everything back together before we come before you, but that you meet us in our brokenness, in our sin, in our need, with the incredible love of Christ. And Lord, may that shape us. That's our prayer as we look into your word this morning, that the grace of your gospel would shape who we are and how we live as your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In March of 2014, 23 people died in Sierra Leone of what was first described as a mysterious hemorrhagic fever and then later identified as Ebola virus disease. Uh, Somewhere in April or May, that disease made its way into the neighboring country of Liberia. On August 8th, the World Health Organization finally issued a global health warning as the epidemic reached a 1,000 deaths. On September 2nd, Dr. Rick Sacra, one of our missionaries here at Westgate, who was serving in Liberia, was diagnosed with the Ebola disease. Two days later, we gathered here at this church to pray for Rick and to pray for the crisis 
And after he recovered, we gathered again here on November 2nd with Dr. Sacra and his wife to pray again for God to bring an end to the Ebola epidemic. And around the world, thousands upon thousands of prayers like that have been offered over the last several months. And while vigilance is still required because the borders are so porous between Sierra Leone and Guinea and Liberia, on March 5th, Liberia released their last Ebola patient from the hospital. It's amazing. We praise God for that. Keep praying, but praise God. And yet when you reflect on the last year now, of this crisis, that crisis has left its mark. The ravaged healthcare system, thousands of lives lost. But one of the most surprising effects of the Ebola crisis in Liberia and other West African countries is the stigma that survivors and families of victims now live with. So many having battled for their life through this disease, have returned to their communities and neighborhoods to be completely shunned and kicked out for fear that they're still contagious. Landlords refusing to allow tenants back into their apartments. Uh, Spouses abandoning survivors. Children who are orphaned by the disease that no one will take in out of fear. For some... The stigma afterwards has been worse than the fever, as they've described it. Even when we hosted Dr. Sacra here, uh, a local school principal declined an invitation to come hear him because she was afraid he still had Ebola. Prejudice is a very powerful force. To prejudge, that's what prejudice means, to prejudge someone So to make a judgment or a distinction among people in advance, beforehand, before you actually know that person or anything about them, to arrive at a verdict about them. To show favoritism or partiality towards some, and therefore to marginalize others based on what we think or see, which may or may not be true. It's a powerful force, and it's very easy to slip into, and the church is no exception to that. Uh, Among those outside the church between the ages of 16 and 29, so those outside kind of looking in, among that age group, nearly 9 out of 10 would describe the church as judgmental. That's one of the words that, that they would come up with. And, you know, that's perception, But if the perception's that strong, you know there's some reality behind it. So how should the gospel of Jesus affect that perception, that temptation among us, that reality within the church? That's what James 2 is going to help us think through this morning. Uh, We've been looking at what we've called the gospel for all of life. And so how does the good news of Jesus, which... We mean by that the the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom on earth, his rule and reign on this earth, and to deal with our sin 
through the life, death, and resurrection of his son by the power of the Spirit. How does that message shape all of life? That's kind of the big picture of the series that we're going through. And last week, we began specifically looking at how the gospel should shape the church. So not just me as individual, as an individual, but us together in relationship and in community as we're united in one body in Christ. So Mark Bauer got us kicked off last week with this focus on the gospel in the church, looking at 1 Peter 2 and how the true church and our true unity in the church, it's those who gather around Jesus Christ. He's the centerpiece. But sometimes we find ourselves tempted to walk out of step with that unity or to walk out of step with the truth of the gospel and how it's shaping us to be a people of mercy and love. And so sometimes we do find ourselves operating out of partiality, favoritism, judgmentalism in the church. The temptation is usually pretty subtle. So it's not something that you necessarily see coming from afar. Uh, In fact, I doubt that many people would see that as a big deal. You know, if you had to come up with your list of, of issues that we need to give attention to, partiality is probably not going to make that list for a lot of us. I mean, we recognize it exists, sure, but it's kind of somebody else's problem. It's, it's over there, right? It's not really our problem, is it? It hasn't gotten to us yet, which is what people said about Ebola for six months before it became too late. And and James, this letter in the New Testament, uh, James is not going to let us dismiss the issue so quickly. In fact, he addresses it head on in our passage this morning in part of his broader appeal that the church would not merely give lip service to their faith, but they would actually put it into practice and live out their faith in obedience to the Lord, that they would persevere in steadfast maturity, even in the face of conflict. And and so among doing that, James wants, James issues really in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he issues a gospel health warning for the church about this subtle but dangerous disease we call partiality or favoritism. And so he issues the warning in chapter 2, verse 1. Go ahead and look in your Bibles there. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's the issue. Uh, That's the warning issued. And notice how James addresses the churches that he's writing to. These churches scattered throughout scattered throughout the world in, in the first century, uh, he, notice how he addresses these churches as family. He calls them brothers, or you could translate that word brothers and sisters. He's addressing them as family. And notice that it's their faith in Jesus and what they do with that faith that he's concerned about. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory... So, so as you together, as a family, live out your faith in Christ, your faith in our glorious Lord and King Jesus, show 
no partiality, no favoritism, no prejudice, no there's no room for partiality in a gospel-shaped church. That's what he's saying. So this is his gospel health warning to guard against that subtle disease. You might think of those little warnings that, you know, the CDC issues or something like that. That's the issue at the top of the page, okay? So what does it look like? What's the symptoms for that subtle disease? What should we be aware of and watching out for? Well, James goes on to illustrate those symptoms in verses 2 through 4. Look at that with me. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When... um. Whenever we have family come into town from, you know, family or friends from out of town, they always want to see Boston. And we tend to show them the same things over and over again because those are the few things we know to show them. And one of the spots that we invariably hit is the North End. And apart from Mike's pastry, the other, uh, other landmark there that we make sure and show them is the Old North Church. The, you know, the Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, all that kind of stuff. And, and when you go into that church, this, this old church, you can see one of the ways they used to raise funds in these old churches. They had their pew boxes. And you had to pay money to be able to reserve your pew box. And the more money you paid, the better seat you got. And so you had your dignitaries and socialites in the front. And someone comes in who doesn't have much money, they're standing in the back. That's pretty close to what James is criticizing here. This temptation to give special attention to those who have money or who look like they have money in the context of our gathered worship. You know, maybe we're suspicious of someone who comes in looking a little unkempt. You know, are they, what are they doing here? Are they off the street? Are they going to steal something? Or whatever ideas go through our head based on what we see or or maybe we think that if somebody kind of looks wealthy and we pay attention to them, they'll become a big giver in the church. And we, we need our big givers. We've got to keep them happy and so on. It's so easy to kind of try and pander to the people we think who are of influence while ignoring those we think who may be of no account. For what it's worth, uh, I and the elders don't know what anybody gives in this church. And we like it that way because that shouldn't factor into decisions. It shouldn't factor into our pastoral care. We have godly, gifted, trustworthy treasurers and deacons to handle those things. And frankly, I want to be free to preach boldly from the scriptures when it talks about money and giving without anybody thinking he's targeting me. He saw what I gave last week and now he's at me. You can't you can't make that charge because I don't know. You just got to listen to the scriptures Okay? But that's a huge temptation. And, and gathered worship isn't the only context in which we're tempted to kind of be partial to or to marginalize. 
it can show up in how leaders are selected in a church. You know, you know, the scripture gives us biblical qualifications for selecting leaders. But maybe we add to some of those. You know, we, we add some worldly categories like, you know, someone's business savvy or their money or their popularity or their partisanship. They kind of see things the way I see them. I want them. Uh, it can show up in how decisions are made within a church, whose voices are heard and whose voices aren't. It can show up in our pastoral care, who gets attention from the pastor and who doesn't. And I confess we are not always perfect at these things. And, and so gathered worship isn't the only context in which partiality is a threat. But socioeconomic status is also not the only criteria that we are tempted to use when we're being partial or, or showing favoritism. There are We can make distinctions on a whole host of categories. There's, there's no end to the things that we can prejudge people based on. Uh, and, and I want us to kind of think for a minute where am I tempted to draw conclusions about someone without actually knowing them? What categories am I most tempted to operate on? So maybe it is money or appearance for you, like we see in the example. But maybe it's something else, uh, like education, you know? Do you make distinctions among families and kind of carve up the church into, into sections based on whether people do homeschool or public school or private school? And then assume certain things about different groups and assign certain values to them without actually even knowing the people that you've now categorized. Uh, maybe it's race and ethnicity. Buying into cultural stereotypes, treating some, someone differently because of the color of their skin or the thickness of their accent or something like that. Maybe it's worship style. You know, if they like the drums, they must hate Jesus. Or if they like the organ, they must, they must hate young people. You know, we draw these conclusions. I've had these conversations. Maybe it's the appearance of the building. You know, we draw conclusions about people because of what kind of building they meet in. So you might go into one building that looks more like a shopping mall than a church. And you might assign certain values and motives to that congregation based on that. Or you come in here and you see the chandeliers and you see the big pulpit and the traditional architecture. And you might think, well, these people must be really fake and showy. You know, superficial. They must care more about maintaining the status quo than living in authentic relationships on mission for Christ. Not because we know anything about them, but simply because we see this. Or you could see all of this and say, praise God, finally a church that cares about the reverence and majesty of God. When as a matter of fact, there are countless traditional buildings in New England, who have a severely low view of God and who are utterly depleted of the gospel. And so there's all sorts of, of ways that we can make distinctions among the body, and, you know, theological uh, distinctions or positions, certain doctrines that we kind of set maybe above the gospel and then therefore weigh everybody else's orthodoxy based on them. You know, 
baptism, views on baptism, or Calvinism, or gender roles, or Israel, or something like that. Maybe it's denominations. You know, we, we hear a, a denomination, and we just, all of a sudden, there's a whole picture in our brain about what this person must be like. Uh, the Evangelical Free Church is about as close to non-denominational as you can get while still being a denomination. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's not a temptation for us. The story is told of a man uh, walking across a bridge one day who saw another man standing on the edge about to jump. And he ran over and yelled at him, Stop! Don't do it! Why shouldn't I? He asked. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Are you religious? Yes, he said. Me too, said the other man. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Baptist or Congregational? <laughs> Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. So the man said, die, heretic scum, and pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) There's no limit to how fine we can slice these things, is there? Um, Those are some of the symptoms. And we can laugh about it, and hopefully that helps us take ourselves not too seriously. But it is a real threat. And those are some of the symptoms. But what's the actual problem underneath those symptoms? What are the symptoms revealing? Well, James tells us in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's what's going on in partiality. When we show favoritism or prejudice or partiality within the body. Essentially what we're saying, what we're doing is taking God's role as judge into our own hands. The problem is that our motives and thoughts are evil when we do it. Only God is the one who has the authority to exercise that role. We judge in order to exercise our own kingdom for our own glory. When it comes down to it, Partiality is all about power and control. That's what's going on. Gaining power, trying to get people of influence on my side, maintaining power, or exercising power over others so that they don't get it. It's all about who's in control of the church. It's the kind of self-righteous attitude that we slip into When we utter the words, not in my church, you want guitar during worship, not in my church. You want to use the organ, not in my church. 
You want to eliminate a certain ministry or you want to put what color of paint on the wall? Not in my church. And we have this kind of, I mean, we should have a healthy ownership, of, you know, yeah, happy at my church. But we get this kind of closed ownership like it's my church. When in reality, this is Jesus' church. It's his body. He bought it with his blood. He created it through his word. He owns it, rules over it, fills it with his spirit. And so therefore, it's his gospel that ought to guide the church in the decisions that we make, not my own little self-centered criteria. And so when we ignore those symptoms and that deeper cause, and we allow this disease to fester, we put the health of Christ's body at great risk. And James outlines three of those risks in verses 5 to 13, and then tells us how to prevent them as well. So verses 5 through 11, the first risk that we run if we coddle and tolerate partiality or even cultivate it, number one, partiality causes us to oppose people whom God approves. It's verse five. Partiality causes us to oppose people whom God approves. Listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So God is approving someone that the church is opposing through their partial behavior. Uh, James is pointing out that this shabbily dressed fellow that you're kind of marginalizing off to the side, that man is precious to God. In fact, It's the poor and weak in this world through whom God has chosen to display his beauty and power. And they, too, will be inheriting the kingdom along with you, probably at the front of the line. You think of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Partiality says that you've got to have it all together to be able to worship God. You've got to. You've got to have it all together to be part of his family. The gospel tells us something different. In 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul says there, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So as Mark talked about last week, the true church consists of people who gather around Jesus. And all who are united in Jesus are part of that family. All who are united in Jesus look forward to his inheritance, which means there's no room for that kind of prejudicial partiality in the church. Do not oppose someone whom God actually approves. That's the first risk. 
The second is that partiality rarely gives you what you're looking for. Verses 6 and 7. James gets rather just pragmatic here. Uh, Verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? Basically, James is saying... Whatever you think you're going to get by pandering to the wealthy and influential, haven't they generally given you the opposite in your experience? Didn't some of them make their money by exploiting you or, or people like you? And, and didn't they, in their oppression and exploitation, dishonor the very name Christian by their behavior? And, and James spells out what was happening later in chapter 5 within the church. It was ugly. And so basically he's saying, walk me through the logic again of why you think this is going to get you what you want. Because your experience actually says something different here. Uh, it doesn't make sense. It's like, it's like the guy who will never commit to a relationship because he's always afraid that someone cuter might come along. And then when he finds her, he gets dumped because she found someone cuter than him. Partiality might work for a season. But since it's fueled by self-interest on both sides, as soon as the person you're pandering to can achieve their goals better elsewhere, you're no longer necessary to them. And whatever advantage you thought you were going to have, someone else is going to gain. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. And so favoritism can cause us to oppose people whom God approves. It doesn't really work And then finally, and most significantly in James's argument here, number three, partiality is out of step with the kingdom law of Christ. It's out of step with the kingdom law of Christ. Verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors or lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, but also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a lawbreaker, a transgressor of the law. So speak in a manner, and act in a manner as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James makes two critical points here. Uh, First, he shows us what the opposite of partiality looks like. Love and mercy. That's the opposite of partiality. And then second, he shows us how treating partiality like no big deal is not an option for the church. You cannot turn a blind eye to something like this. Again, we, we, when we think of sins that we need to be really vigilant against, this isn't usually on our top ten. Um, you know, it, it doesn't show up in the list of the big nasties like, you know, murder and adultery and theft and all the things like, obviously, yeah, don't go there. And and we tend to minimize and ignore the quote-unquote more respectable sins. Sins 
nobody else can really pick up on necessarily or uh, things that are just culturally acceptable among us. Gossip, uh, greed, anger, judgmentalism, partiality. But James is telling us the law of God doesn't work that way. If you break one command, it's as good as breaking them all. It's a package deal. It's not a Whitman sampler. You know, pick one and, and, and the rest are still there. And, and James, throughout his entire letter, is making the big point that God cares about how we live as a church. We are saved by grace, not by our works and what we do. But grace changes us. And, and he's making a big point that, that we need to live out our faith not use grace as an excuse for lawlessness. As he says right before our passage in 122, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then he says right after our passage in 217, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So obedience matters to God. James even says right here in verse 12, that we will be judged according to the law of liberty. Which, I mean, a law of liberty sounds kind of like an oxymoron because law we think of as oppressive and liberty is, you know, freedom. What is this law that gives freedom? And why are we going to be judged? I thought there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, that is true. If Christ is your Lord and your Savior, the wrath of God that you deserved was fully spent on him in your place. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But right there in Romans, which is Romans 8.1 is what I was quoting there, and throughout the New Testament, there is alongside of that this strong warning that even you who are justified by Christ will stand before God's throne because your faith ought to bear fruit in your life. And God's going to Look for evidence of that faith in the end. In other words, you can't get away with lip service. You can't get away with lip service that's just going to say, yeah, I believe all of that, but not actually have your life changed by it. Faith bears fruit, and faith in Jesus ought to bear fruit in the body of guarding against this kind of impartial behavior. We should not tolerate it or, or allow ourselves to be comfortable with it obedience matters and the essence of obedience when it comes to how we treat one another the kingdom law of christ here is love and mercy that's the obedience that's the summation of the law you think of of jesus's conversation in matthew 22 and someone asks him you know What's the greatest commandment in the law? And he says two things. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. If you obey these two things, you're doing everything. You will be keeping everything else. And and so James follows that exact same logic. Quotes Leviticus 19 as the royal law, according to Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the opposite of partiality. To love someone as I hope they will love me. To love someone as though they were part of me because we are 
in the same family. That's his recommendation for prevention of this disease. Love and mercy. Partiality thrives where love is cold and mercy is withheld. And and no doubt among us, there are some who have lived in families or even church contexts that that has been true. The love is cold. The mercy is withheld. It's not a fun place to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Put another way, partiality thrives where the gospel is not applied to our relationships. Remember what the gospel of Jesus tells us. God has mercy on sinners. That's what the gospel of Jesus tells us. God has mercy on sinners. That that we who in our sin and law-breaking, deserve God's judgment and wrath, we are offered new life and forgiveness. We are offered freedom and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus has done everything for us. We are lawbreakers. Jesus was the perfect law keeper. We are guilty of sin. Jesus paid for those sins on the cross. We were spiritually dead. Jesus makes us alive through the power of his resurrection. And and so God looks on us in our sorry estate. And he has mercy. Remember the resume from last week that Mark talked about. Have received mercy. That's at the top of who we are. Think of Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to figure out what the uncommunicated cultural norms are of this community. He loved us in our sin right where we were at. Put in the words of James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the message of the gospel, that God's mercy has triumphed over judgment in our lives. And that message ought to bear fruit in how we treat one another. Now, that doesn't mean that we never use discernment or make distinctions. It doesn't mean everyone's opinion is equally right. It does mean everyone should be heard. Everyone should be part of the conversation. Everyone should be loved. It doesn't mean that we no longer speak to sin. I mean, if you look at this chapter, James is speaking very directly to sin in the body right now by condemning partiality. Nor does it mean that the only sin is considering something sinful, which is kind of what the world around us would have us believe. It means... That the good news of Jesus is our guide as we wrestle with matters of sin and mercy and forgiveness. It means that that when we deal with sin, we do so according to that royal law of Scripture. According to the Bible and the gospel, which tells us that sin really is sinful, but grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin and upholding both of those things at the same time in our interactions. 
if we're captivated by the gospel, if we, were, if we take on board the mercy God has had on us through Jesus, we will love God. If we love God, we will love one another. If we truly love God, we will love his family. If we love one another, we will not oppose those whom God approves of. If we love one another, we will not worry about manipulating people we think will benefit us or while ignoring those we think can't. If we love one another, we're going to work hard at listening to and including and caring and praying for and serving and, and seeking out all who belong to Christ and seeking out those who don't yet know him. We're going to prioritize our love and our unity over our personal preferences if we love one another. And we're going to guard against that kind of prejudicial partiality that's so easy If we love one another like family from the heart, mercy will triumph over justice, over judgment. People will be cared for and served, and the name of Christ will be honored. And so, may we seek God's mercy to love one another in that way. There's no room for partiality in a gospel-shaped church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess that when it comes to matters like this, we are very often uh, blind. We don't see where we're tempted to do this. We don't... We have no problem seeing others doing it, but it's hard for us to see it. And we need the Spirit. We need your Spirit to open our eyes to be able to see that. We need your Spirit to remind us of the mercy that you have had on us, that we would show that mercy to others. We need your grace. We need your grace and mercy to complete in us the work that you've begun to continue to change us so that we would love one another from a pure heart. And we want to do that, God, because this is your family and you are our Father. We love you. We want to honor you. Give us the grace to do so. And may that mutual love and may that glory that we extend to your name be a sweet aroma to the watching world. May we shed some of these misperceptions. May we repent where those perceptions are real and may we shed the misperceptions of impartiality and judgmentalism. May we instead be known for the gospel of grace. Sin is sinful, grace is sufficient, and you are our Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.